It's the first Monday of the month, and we are tackling questions from the Coaching for Leaders community around accountability. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 178. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. This is a weekly show to help leaders improve their communications, strategy, coaching, productivity, and personal mastery. And once a month on the first Monday, we open up the lines to your questions. And so if you have a question you're thinking about as you're listening today, I hope you'll submit it to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And we're going to tackle questions today on accountability. I am glad Bonnie is back to help field questions uh, here as well. Hello, Bonnie. Hello, Dave. And this is the time every month where we read a question. You give one answer. I give a completely different answer. And then somewhere in between, people find hopefully something of value, (laughs) right? (laughs) Depending on what they want to hear, right? I think that that's going to be true. We already talked about some different perspectives, and that's good. Always good. I I think that's one of the that's one of my favorite things about this uh, conversation we have every month. Actually, is you and I come from just you know like everyone different walks of life as far as our professional experience and look at these a different way. And uh, and you know I think uh, I always walk away with something differently too. And I hope that's true for everyone listening. So so let's jump in and tackle a few of these questions. Um, the first question here is from Brian. Brian. Uh, wrote in and said, I presently struggle with keeping the balance between friend and boss as we work closely together. Uh, Sounds like there's three of them that are in cubicles next to each other. While this allows us to be a very close-knit unit, almost uh, as much as camaraderie in the army, but not quite, I know I've already blurred the line more than I should have. It was easy to keep your distance in the military because you always had your rank, whether you're in uniform or not. You could be a friend and a sergeant at the same time. This has proven to be my biggest challenge as a civilian leader. And uh, Bonnie, this isn't the first time we've gotten a question like this, and it's not the first time that I've heard about leaders making that transition from military to civilian, and and that being a struggle because it really is a very different environment and it's a different work environment for sure. Um, I know you have some thoughts on this, and I think I probably have some different thoughts, so I'll I'll let you go first. (laughs) Why don't we let you go first, (laughs) and then I'll show you how you're wrong. No, I'm kidding. Why don't you go first? (laughs) I'd be be happy to. I'd be happy to. So yeah, Brian, you know, we've we've actually gotten this question a couple of times, varying forms of it over the last few months. We should probably do a show some at some point on how do you how do you manage people and lead people, but also still maintain friendships or maybe you don't maintain friendships. And I guess my my thought on this is that if you if you're inheriting a team, if you're becoming a leader or a manager in a team that is a team of peers that are people you were friends with and worked closely with and you move into a management role, I think that's a I think that's a time to really take stock in the situation and to sit down and have a conversation with people and talk about how the relationship will change. And I think if you do that well and set some of those expectations up front and talk about things that that will change and maybe some things that won't change at the beginning of that process when you assume that role, that that helps people to make that transition. And I think that it is a transition. I don't think that if you're managing a group of people, I think that you want to be friendly with them, of course, but I, I think that I just, I just, I don't, 
it's different than being friends. Like you're when you're managing someone, I don't think you want to find your friendships there. I think you want to find your friendships other places. And so you may be friends with the person that you're working with or leading, but I don't know. It's just I've I've not found it to work well where that becomes like a true friendship in the past. Have you 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 have a different philosophy on this though, Bonnie, you said earlier. Well, first of all, there's a lot we don't know about your situation. We we know you served and that certainly working in a culture like that is going to shape how you perceive relationships between managers and peers and what have you. And we don't know, though, what your culture is like where you're working now. One thing that as I read your question and just contemplated it, I don't think that if we're working to our fullest potential, we could avoid forming friendships at work. So I guess I would advocate that that's actually a healthy sign. In fact, Gallup, the Gallup organization, when they did a bunch of research on motivation and, and which employees were the most engaged, one of the things they, the question that's on there is, do you have a friend at work? And people really pushed back on that question. They don't like it. And when I've sat in workshops before, it's where, actually, do you have a best friend at work? Yeah. yeah. And that's a huge, huge indicator as to how satisfied and how um, your performance is going to be in the workplace. So I think that should reveal to us the importance of friendship. And when I think back to my entire professional experience, when I've been able to be part of a team that has accomplished amazing feats, it was always rooted in some form of friendship. I think what Dave is cautioning us, not just Dave, I think the cautionary tone we might make for everyone is to, in a couple of veins, one would be, we never know what's going to happen. We have to kind of keep that that perspective of saying, I don't know if I'm going to become your supervisor. It doesn't sound to me, by the way, when I read this, Dave, it doesn't sound like he's actually the manager, but it doesn't really matter. Our advice is, is still the same, but I might become the manager. I might get another manager. Things always are going to change. I think that's the safest bet that we have is to say that the relationships and the hierarchy as it is right now is going to change. That's a healthy thing to keep in mind always. One of the things I was thinking about while Dave was talking too is that Dave and I work together pretty frequently on engagements with clients. I mean, I guess not that frequently, but at least a couple, two, three times a year, we Mm -hmm. might have some kind of a work project we work together. Goodness gracious, we're married to each other. (laughs) Of course, that that brings with it. It's not like one of us is going to have to terminate the other or lay the other person off. I guess I would, I just, I would just kind of explore this idea of keeping your distance the phrase that you used and keeping your distance can be healthy. And I think it can also be hurtful when we keep ourselves at too much of a distance that that safety that we're trying to protect actually, I think can hold us back from our greatest potential. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really, uh, that's really wise. And I, I certainly, I didn't mean to convey it all. They shouldn't be friends with people in the workplace. Um, I think that if your expectation as a manager if you're man that you would find your best friend to be someone you're managing. Oh no. I think no. that that's yeah, that's oh, what no. I'm that's the perspective I'm looking <laughs> yeah. at here is I think that's not a healthy dynamic. No, that's not healthy. You know, have your best friend be someone else, some you know, even outside the organization that you work in. I think that that's not a good dynamic. And I think some people expect that when they have been especially if they've been on a team before and then they get promoted up and all of a sudden they're managing people that they've been really good friends with for sometimes years. And then they're shocked when the relationship changes and people like all of a sudden they have to do something managerial and, and then they get excluded from going to lunches and things like that. And 
Yeah, it's different. It's a different dynamic. There are social functions where people might not realize they can can ignite some potentially discriminatory situations, such as, oh, we're going to go out and golf every Friday. Golf tends to be something that men do. I'm not saying women can't play golf or don't play golf. It's just statistically speaking, more men are going to play golf than women. You could inadvertently through your social functions be discriminating. Same thing with, I've worked with people before that might travel internationally, go to other countries where it's very common for the men to go out and drink and smoke after work. And that is not a place where women are in some cases even permitted to go, but in other cases, it's just not socially acceptable to go. So being careful about social functions that you have and, and in that particular case, trying to include other people who might not otherwise be included. I I like what you said too earlier about it really matters on what your organization's dynamic are Mm and culture. And I was thinking about just, as you were saying that my work at Dale Carnegie and, you know, we have a hierarchy and we all have titles and, you know, reporting relationships But really, I mean, I think about our team as like, we've got a group of friends who work together and love to support each other. And and there are actually a number of people I work with that I consider to be really good friends and some of them that we're in reporting relationships with. So, but it's, but it's very much the culture of organization to be helpful with each other and to have friendships. And so, um, so I think that's a great, great evidence of your point. And you haven't talked about this too much on the show, but for anyone who may not be aware, your workplace is fairly small Mm -hmm. and have had a pretty large number of people pass away in a pretty short order. I can't imagine over four or five years. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine your close knit team being able to really transition through that grief as well as you did. If you didn't have the kind of ability to be vulnerable with one another and, and, and be open about those things. I think it would have made it a lot harder. Not that it wasn't hard as it was. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really like a family. So yeah, that's, it's just it just matters how the culture of the organization is. So, so I hope that that uh, was helpful to you, Brian. And good luck. Let us know what uh, what comes of that. The next question here is from Sarah. Sarah says, "I recently found your podcast and have been an avid listener ever since." Well, thank you, Sarah. I'm about to re-enter the corporate world in what I think must be my dream role. Very exciting. Uh, she says, "So I'm very excited, although also nervous, anxious, and ecstatic, <laughs> and so have been." Uh, arming myself with the tools and tips in many of the episodes. My question is, what would be your first priority when assuming a senior executive role in a large organization and inheriting a team handpicked by the previous incumbent who has been laterally moved now due to poor performance? I envision there are going to be some very disgruntled team members loyal to my predecessor. And while I want to make a good first impression, I also want to be clear that I'm not interested in historical politics and there to lead the team positively forward. Bonnie, I'm going to toss this one to you first because you have been a senior executive in an organization. And I don't know if you've had this particular issue come before, but I know you've inherited teams before. Um, What are the kinds of things that she should be thinking of top of mind right now walking into this situation? When we only see a few sentences like this, it's always tough because I don't know if you actually have had any hints already that there are disgruntled people there. If you don't already have hints, I would caution you to avoid making any any 
forecasting something like that for yourself in advance. I think it when we start going in with a sense of suspicion and I'm looking out for that, we might see things that actually aren't there. There's a resource that I'd strongly recommend that you read and it's called The First 90 Days. It is a fabulous book. And that would be my first priority as an executive in a, in a new team would be to be going through the steps in that first 90 days. As a senior executive, I mean, as any leader in an organization coming in, it can be so difficult because that, that first impression is happening in a magnifying glass. And what I have seen from people is not as much issues about disgruntled team members, although I'm sure you'll have all sorts of lovely things that you're challenged by as you start. But a lot more of it is a sense of arrogance that people from outside the organization have when they come in without being comfortable enough asking questions and being in that uncomfortable space of awkwardly not being able to contribute in any significant way to the organization. And that's really uncomfortable. And especially for you, you said you've been out of the corporate world for a while. I'm not sure if that means that you haven't been in a, in a professional capacity. If, if, if you were in, I don't know if you weren't working or, or just not in the corporate world working, but nonetheless, I would say it's, going to be a culture shock regardless. Mm-hmm. And that we all get uncomfortable and say, oh, they're paying me this money and I need to start, I need to start contributing because it's important and I have to look good. And that those are the most dangerous feelings for us to be having in that situation. And just to sit back and be willing to look dumb. And I, and I'm using that word intentionally because it can feel like we're dumb by asking the questions, that kind of respect to really learn a culture and to learn the language and to be willing to have people think, oh, well, she didn't know what that was. She doesn't know that. Well, you know what? You're going to learn so fast because you're willing to sit there and ask those questions. And you're not going to find yourself making a really bad first impression by giving advice too early. Even if you had the perfect solution, which I'd assert you don't, (laughs) but even if you had the perfect solution and you give the advice, it just smacks of, wait a second, you know, how could you possibly know at this point? And you're not going to have the kind of support that you need from that team. So check out the book, The First 90 Days. And I just wanted to say congratulations, Sarah. It's so fun when you get that dream job. And I'm just excited for you. And I'm looking forward to hearing how it goes. And I'm going to echo what you said on the, it being willing to ask the, the stupid or the dumb question. Uh, Suzanne Matson and I talked about that a couple of weeks ago on the show when we talked about project management. And if you have the the courage to do that, that's a, that can be a really powerful thing. And that ac- actually echoes right into one of the pieces of advice I have is to just, if you can, spend the first two weeks watching and listening. Don't change anything right away when you get in if you, if you can at all avoid it. Um, I got this advice when I took over a team Oh gosh, it was probably 12 or 13 years ago. And I sort of didn't follow it. And I started changing some things. And people did push back on that because I started changing a few things a little too quickly because I didn't realize the reason why those things were put in and ended up having to change a few things back. And and it did break a little bit of trust with the team that I had at that time. So if you can set the expectation, not only with the team, but even the people that are leading you of, you know, I want to, I'm going to spend the first week or two just listening and watching and finding out what's going on before I start really changing a lot of things. And I think as a senior executive, I I would counter Dave's two-week frame and say it's a lot longer than that. 
it's it's a lot longer. You're going to be uncomfortable for a while. Oh yeah. And and I would not make any changes for a very long time. <laughs> but well, like don't change anything for the first two weeks. Like don't even move the phone. <laughs> like don't move the plant. That's mm-hmm. one of the things people come in and start like even moving little things. I mean, literally moving the plant in the office. Someone's gonna be, <laughs> someone's gonna be upset about that. Literally, don't move a thing for two weeks. And then maybe you make some small changes, but like Bonnie said, it's going to take some time to earn that trust to really find out what's going on. The other thing that I would say is if you are concerned that there's going to be some people who are fans of this previous leader, some people are not, I just think it's a great... It's it's a great way to be in the world to just make a decision right up front that you're not going to say anything bad about that other person. Because you you may or may not know them. You may build a relationship with them. But just to say, you know what? We are here to look forward. I'm not going to... If I find things that aren't working or I don't agree with, I'm not going to say anything bad about that person. Yes, we may do something different down the road, but I'm just not going to... I'm not going to badmouth that person, especially if they're still in the organization. Because that's just not... I don't think that's productive for anyone. And then finally, another resource for you, Sarah, that might be helpful is way back on episode 98, we had on Pam Fox Rollin. And Pam is the author of a book called 42 Rules to Your New Leadership Role. I think that's a great... uh, And she's written it toward really two senior executives. Um, A lot of great ideas there and things to think of as you enter a new new leadership role. And certainly listening to that episode would be helpful to you too, again, episode 98. So hope that's helpful, Sarah. Congrats on the new role. And we look forward to hearing more about it in the future here. So let's move on, Uh, Bonnie. We've got a question here from Rachel. Rachel says, I'm struggling with a staff member who is supposedly bullying other people and being extremely rude. She knows I am watching her and is perfectly delightful when I'm around. I have many staff members reporting that she completely changes when I'm not around. And I ended up exchanging a couple of emails with Rachel, uh, actually, Bonnie, on a couple other topics. And she also, I'm not going to read any more of the details because I don't want to reveal the organization or, or, or her identity. But um, it, it's it's not just a couple of people. It's like an entire team of people that this person is apparently going after and causing all kinds of problems with. So it, it sounds like it's a pretty extreme situation. Um, you want to go first or you want me to throw a few days? All right, so I'll throw a few days. I, I guess the first thought I'd have, Rachel, and I'm sure you're already thinking this, but if you have someone on your team that is creating the a toxic environment that is affecting everyone's work, which I know you mentioned in your follow-up email is, is something that is happening here, that is ever an ever-present issue on a daily and even hourly basis, you have to do something about that. I just, I just think it's incumbent upon a leader to address that situation and do something meaningful, because if you don't, not only do you not resolve the problem that is keeping people from doing their work and being able to be productive, but at some point, you lose trust with the people that you're leading of being willing and able to do something about the situation. So good for you for writing in the question. I know you are doing something about the situation. So first thing is talk to your organization's HR department. Uh, if you have an HR contact, find out what it is, what are the things you should be doing from a policy procedure standpoint. One of the first things I think that they'll tell you is to start documenting things. So if you are having situations that come up and you're hearing things from people is just start writing those things down because if and when you do need to take formal action and it sounds like this is a situation that that may happen is that you're going to need to have more than just well someone said something 
bad about them, you know, hypothetically, you'll need to have some documented record of what's happened, what conversations you've had, and you may never do anything with it. You may, you know, just keep the notes for yourself if, if, um, you know, nothing comes of it, but start writing down the documents and documenting the incidents and all the things that are happening so that you have something to go on when you do need to take action. Bonnie? Based on what has been shared, I can't imagine that you're not on that path and that you don't know that you're on that path. You're on that path. And so I I don't think it's going to be a if, I think it's going to be a win. And I think that win needs to happen as soon as possible. And if, if there's anything that you're doing that's avoiding the conflict or avoiding addressing these issues head on, I would really take a look at that. And, and one resource for you is that Michael Hyatt, that's another podcast on leadership and personal effectiveness. He just did an episode on how to fire someone. It also, by the way, was uh, how to lay someone off, but Dave will put a link to that in the show notes. And it just really walked you through exactly step-by-step what to do. It sounds to me like you're on that path. And if you're not sure, my gut tells me you might be in denial and it might be another avoidance thing. And, And I hope that that doesn't come across as harsh at all. We're, we're almost going off the fragmented evidence here. Yeah. That's what my gut says. And I just want to cheer you on and say, oh, it's going to not be fun for a little while, but it's going to get so much better will. when it gets resolved on a more permanent basis. The other one I want to mention involves a bit of cursing, but the cursing is in the title of this book. So if you have your kids in the car, you want to fast forward 30 seconds. The book is called The No Asshole Rule. And that is another great resource for dealing with people that are difficult and having a culture that says that's not going to be tolerated. Yep. I've heard great things about that book by, I think it's Bob Sutton. He's out of Stanford. Good stuff. I've not read it, but have you read it? My mom read it and has great things to say. Yeah. I've heard great things about it. I don't work with any people that are... (laughs) In the title of that, of course, book. neither do I. <laughs> uh, okay, let's see. So, uh, Rachel, I've I hope never that was it. you've never needed it, <laughs> Rachel. I hope that is super helpful <laughs> to you, or at least get you thinking about a few other things to attack there. Um, let's see. The next question here is from Paola, and I hope I'm saying that right, Paola. And you've uh, Paola sent in a question before, and we've talked over email a number of times, and she's actually in a new position. And she emailed and says, we have one training initiative, a big international one, where employees uh, should and need to change behavior. My question is, is how can I make the biggest impact as a trainer to a team of 70 people to make sure that this takes place? So there's a lot of different ways we could go here with this question, Bonnie, because it's a fairly broad one. Um, And both of us have worked for training companies. I thought it might be helpful to have some conversation about what kinds of things you can do on the front end and then also some of the evaluation type steps that can be done down the road. Because really the the kinds of things we think of as training um, a lot of times are like the classroom experience or showing up for a, for a workshop in a day or two days. But that's really only one piece of the training experience. And so, um, so I'll toss it over to you here too, see if you have a first thought and then we'll kind of roll with this and maybe look at Kirkpatrick's model. One resource that I always look at when, whenever it's something that needs to change, whether it's a person that needs to change or we need to do more of an organizational change effort is a flow chart that is a flow chart that's a part of a book and it's from Mager and Pipe and it's analyzing performance problems. 
you, you phrased it as, of course, changing behavior, but essentially for changing behavior, we're likely doing that because there's a gap between what we expect and what is presently happening. And one of the things that it does really well is it actually walks you through to see if the intervention of training is appropriate. And it walks you through. It's a real simple flow chart going through what is the desired performance? What's the current performance? And what has the person been taught? I mean, it just kind of walks you through step by step. And only one of those branches off the flow chart is actually training. Because there are some kinds of behavior that training isn't going to actually get the job done for. Mm. Or it might be a more a more complex solution that's needed. We, we might need to look at all different kinds of things, including training as one aspect. How is the compensation aligned? How are the accountability measures aligned and so forth? Two recommendations for you, and then I'll pop it back over to Dave. On something like this, you've got to get crystal clear on the outcomes. They need to be measurable outcomes. And I do have a blog that I've written about writing learning outcomes. And while it is written in the context of higher ed, it fits with any kind of training that's done. Those, those outcomes need to be phrased in such a way, not using words like understand, because then we go, well, how would I know if they understood it? But actually phrased in a way that is measurable and we can actually grasp whether or not the knowledge transfer and the skills have taken place. And then along with that, closely integrated is to determine the measurements. How will you know if the behavior change that you're seeking has actually taken place? What evidence will there be? And not waiting until a very long, long, long time from now to get that report, but are there little milestones we can check in along the way to see how our progress is going and to make tweaks along the way? Great stuff. And so one thing I'd really encourage you to do, Pale, is go back and listen to episode number 155 with Mark Allen. Uh, Mark's really an expert on uh, training corp, uh, corporate universities, and we talked about some of the strategy for this in that episode. So check that out. The title of that episode is Three Strategies to Build Talent in Your Organization, and we had some conversation about this. Um, to Bonnie's point here, absolutely, outcomes, measurement, being clear on that is is essential. One of the things we do at Dale Carnegie is we will oftentimes do assessments during the training experience. So if the training is over a couple of days or even a few weeks, we'll do midpoint check-ins on just handing out, even sometimes doing some written assessments to really find out what people are learning, what's their reaction going so far. Um, but one of the models I also want to introduce for anyone out there who's doing training is to um, definitely familiarize yourself with the evaluation model of Donald Kirkpatrick. He has four different levels that he talks about in evaluation. And if you're doing a major training initiative, you want to know that because, um, because it'll help you to really measure the return on investment the organization's getting. And what a lot of what a lot of trainers and people running training do is they only do the first level, which is to get people's reaction. They'll hand out a feedback sheet at the end of the training and they'll have people fill out a bunch of bubbles or you know write their feedback and that's good to do because it gets you some data on how the training event went but it doesn't really measure if people do anything differently two two days later two weeks later two months later as far as having integrated that skill so level 1 is reaction level 2 is did they learn anything so that would be some sort of assessment that you could give like a test or or have people do a return demonstration or something like that Level three is normally done, it can be doing done during training, but it's mostly done post-training, 
is behavior change. So does the did the people's behavior actually change? So that's the kind of thing you may want to think about, Pale, as you're crafting this program, is what could you do a month later, three months later, six months later, that would be some sort of check-in or some sort of assessment to see of what you trained on. Did people's behavior change? And if you don't know how to measure that, you're probably not clear yet on what the measurement and the outcome is you want in the first place. So I would get clear on that and then figure out how could you measure it through assessments, through observation, through there's a number of different ways you could do it, but to figure out could you measure behavior change? And then Kirkpatrick's fourth level is a return on investment to the organization. So people may change their behavior, but if that behavior change doesn't ultimately result in the organization benefiting from it, then it may not be a valuable use of time and resources. So you want to make sure that that piece is there too. And of course, the reason that a lot of organizations don't do all four of those levels is because it takes time and money to especially do level three and four is to assess behavior change after the training and to go back and check in with people. That takes time. But if it's an important initiative, and it sounds like it is in your case, is spending some time of thinking through how you would do that, at least at, at some level after the the quote unquote official training process is done, I think would be of real value to you. And then it makes the case for how you can do more going forward. Another thing that I have seen why people don't measure the results is the apprehension about what if we don't hit it? And that uncomfortable feeling of, oh gosh, that would mean we were failures as trainers. I would challenge you and say, if your assessment is actually integrated with what's going to help the organization achieve its goals and be the most successful, and you identify some areas where there really are some challenges, even if the particular training intervention isn't working, if those objectives are really integrated with organizational issues, you could be providing a really valuable service. And yeah, I mean, we can say, gosh, the training could improve, but there's these other areas too. Have we thought about this? It doesn't mean that you're a failure as a trainer if gaps exist even after the trainings occurred. So mm-hmm. I would encourage everyone to be courageous. I know there were times in my career where I have not been courageous with that kind of measurement and the organization allowed it too because for the reasons that Dave cited, it's expensive and it's difficult. I had a really valuable lesson from from a guy that, that was just so helpful to me throughout a, a number of years in my career to be more courageous and be more willing to point at flaws in training. And it doesn't mean I'm failing. It actually means I can be courageous in doing that and helping the organization move closer to achieving those goals. And I'd go even further to say most organizations don't do this. And working in the training industry, a lot of times the success of a training initiative is is measured by, okay, what did people think like six months later when they're thinking about doing the next phase of training or the next class or the next workshop? Like, oh, what did people think of that last one? Oh, it was good. Or they liked it. Oh, they didn't like the speaker. And that's how people, unfortunately, a lot of organizations, that's how they measure success. And that's just, that's, that's one data point, but it's not enough when you're really trying to measure the effectiveness of training. So I'd really challenge you to um, take a look at Kirkpatrick's model and uh, see if that uh, is something that you can integrate into your work. So hope that's helpful to you. And our last, uh, our last, well, actually not even a question, just a piece of feedback here from Jeff. Uh, Jeff wrote in after the last show, he's heard us mention OmniFocus a few times, Bonnie is a task management system. And he said, uh, when you give task list recommendations, you may want to consider mentioning Wonderlist as a simple, low or no cost, yet remarkably powerful solution for cross-platform 
platform task management. Although I dearly love OmniFocus, my job requires me to use a PC at the office. Having another computer or an iPad always nearby wasn't ideal, so I've switched much of my task management to Wonderlist, which syncs between Macs, iPhone, iPad, PC at work, uh, as a Chrome web app, it sounds like, and even works down works on all kinds of PC integrations. So, uh, so Jeff, thanks so much for the feedback on that. I've also heard good things about Wonderlist, and I checked online, and it's got some great reviews. And I guess I should mention here too. Um, I know Bonnie has a thought as well, but uh, we really do try to recommend things we've used. And if we haven't used them, we'll let, we'll tell you, and we also will try to let you know about other resources out there. But that's why a lot of our recommendations do tend to be things we've used. And we've not mentioned Wonderlist just because we've not used it before. And I should mention here too, Remember the Milk is another good resource for people that's cross-platform. So that's another uh, another option. I don't have anything fabulous to say other than he mentioned that it's works on locked down computers that don't have admin rights. And I know a number of people that struggle with that in their organizations. How do I use a tool when I can't even install anything on my computer? And so it would just, it sounds like a great option for a lot of portability. Thanks as always to Bonnie for joining me. And I hope you'll join the conversation as well and find the show notes at coachingforleaders.com slash 178. That is the place to catch all the questions, the notes, and also to add in any of your comments as well. And I am already starting to welcome comments for the next Q&A show, which will be episode number 182 at the beginning of March. And that show, the topic will be presentation skills. So if you have a question on presentation skills, public speaking, stage presence, you name it, uh, anything around presenting, I hope that you will submit it for that episode. And the best way to do that is to go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback, and that will get it in the queue to be considered for that show. Uh, One note as well, especially for those of you who have just started listening to the show very recently, as you may not be aware, that I also host a show with my friends at Dale Carnegie called Carnegie Coach. It's very different than this show in that it's extremely short. It's only five to 10 minutes, but it does air daily, Tuesday through Friday when this show is dark. So uh, the reason I mention that is because the last couple of weeks, uh, my colleagues and I have been featuring content on presentation skills. So episodes 47 through 59. So if you're looking for an early head start on our conversation for next month, that's a great thing to check out. So just search for Carnegie Coach on your podcast app or iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to shows. So uh, check that out and hope it's helpful to you. And again, if you have a question, coachingforleaders.com slash feedback is the way to get it in. I hope you'll also join my weekly leadership guide. The leadership guide is coming to your inbox every Wednesday. It always includes my thoughts and recommendations on the best articles, podcasts, videos, and books to support your development between shows. And I also have a overview and a link, a link rather, to the full weekly show notes. And so uh, you'll have all the notes from Bonnie and me, our recommendations from this week. So uh, if you're kind of like me and listen to shows on the road, then this will give you a good way to follow up uh, later on the links and resources that we mention in shows. So thank you very much to all of these folks who have joined the weekly leadership guide this past week. It's a lot of people here. So uh, I hope I get everyone's name at least close to right. So a big thank you here to Dan Stevens, Andreas Fokovist, Nancy Bird, Kat Valentine, Emmanuel 
Awuso Bokeh, I hope that was close, Greg Myers, Mike Figulati, Robert Cowie, Manpreet Karia, Ryan Atchison, Derek Rafferty, Chris Fine, Luis Antanquero Lay, Christoph Molnar, Ron Atkinson, Daniel Escobedo, Penny Lyell, Lindsey Wallace, Brandon Spayeth, Eric Durbin, Natin Patel, Allison Crotwell, Christopher Henderson, Myra Churchico, Roman Kalus, Rebecca McQueen, Dominic Aletto, Jane Loas Sirodias, Kyle Rogers, Rudra Murthy, David Denton, Michael McClellan, Kevin Castro, Jana Haranova, Yvonne Hunith, Andy Willingham, Kwong Lillen, Andrew McLean, Gary Graca, Jeff Dunham, Diane Novak, Dana Bean, Dan Lee, Maurice Savage, Michelle Meyer, Linda Celestino, Susankt Srivastana, Anselme Ikea, I hope I said that close, Jose, Jose Paulino, Aid F, Saeed Yusani, Joy Walk, Edgol Druskidnate, Daniel Morales, Nadine Halls, James Moeller, and Wayne Hodder. Thank you so much for joining. It's such a pleasure to get connected with all of you. And as a bonus, when you join the weekly leadership guide as well, you'll get what all these folks received in the last week, which is immediate guide, immediate access rather to my guide on the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others. Plus, you can download right away the 11-page reader's guide and nine-minute video of my top leadership book recommendations. It's a great way to start your reading this year or to maybe even complete your reading list. I know there's a number of people in our community who are going through that list step-by-step to improve their leadership skills. So I hope you'll consider that as well. And uh, and plus, there's insight on the two books I rely on weekly. Wow, that's a lot. So if you'd like to get involved too, just go to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. That's how to get the weekly leadership guides on Wednesdays. Again, coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. Always a pleasure to be with you for the Q&A shows. Thank you so much to everyone who sent in questions. And I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Take care.